Good evening. Welcome to the Archdale Church of Christ Wednesday night Bible study. We hold this every Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. My name is Russ McCullough. We normally meet at the Archdale building, which is located at 2525 Archdale Drive in Charlotte, 28210. But we are meeting virtually tonight, hopefully for not too much longer. We will see. We wanted tonight to continue our study as the we introduce the Old Testament. We're going through each book of the Old Testament one at a time. Uh, tonight we are in the, the book of Joel. Fantastic book. Uh, maybe. Uh, depends on how you might want to look at it. It's one of the more important books in the Old Testament. Though we hardly ever study it per se, it is has fantastic content and a most unusual content in a very, very good way. Now, some have said that Joel's only mentioned once in the New Testament. And we might be saying, well, that makes it pretty minor. But where it's mentioned is unbelievable and it's integral the book of joel is integral to the entire word of god and the entire plan of salvation the entire plan of redemption and how god planned from before the foundations of the earth with jesus christ and the holy spirit to save mankind that have had not even been created as yet. This is the plan, how it unfolds, and it's told to us in the book of Joel. Fantastic, fantastic book. The name of Joel is means the Lord is God. What a, what a great name. And in this short little book, God unfolds to us through this prophet his most precious plan the plan to salve bring salvation to all men beginning in Jerusalem going to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth it all began in Jerusalem and it was prophesied by this man Joel now, we don't know exactly when the book was written. We do know that it was written before Nebuchadnezzar's taking of Jerusalem, and it was written uh, after King David at some point. Uh, we just don't know for sure when it was written. And we don't know anything about this man, Joel, but what he wrote was fantastic. Before we get into our study, let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we're indeed thankful, Lord, for this day. Uh, this day of beauty and opportunity and blessings. We are grateful for what you have done for us this day. Help us, Lord, as we are in these difficult times to live one day at a time. This being Wednesday, the day that... We call the 13th of May in the year of our Lord 20 and 20. 
let us live this day, not yesterday, not tomorrow, because tomorrow is not here and yesterday is gone, but you have given us today, right now. May we revel in this blessing of the moment. And as we are in this moment, studying this book of Joel and its fantastic use in our New Testament and how important it is to our soul salvation, we praise you and thank you for this message. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So here we are uh, looking at the book of Joel. And I really, I'm not going to go to Joel. I'm going to go to Acts chapter 2. Because Acts chapter 2 is where Joel explodes in truth. It is fantastic how it comes out and how it's used and what great truth we learn from it. When it was written to the Jews, it was written in metaphorical and symbolic language, and they really didn't know what Joel was talking about. But when we get to Acts, the meaning, the meaning of Joel is clear, and Peter announces it with great enthusiasm and clarity. Oftentimes in the Bible, we sometimes struggle with the the meaning of passages, the singular meaning, because we have to go back and we have to look at the the time it was written. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? What was the history? What was the culture? What was the language? What were some of the cultural nuances of the day? With this passage in Joel, Peter tells us by inspiration, this is the meaning of Joel. Don't have to worry about or wonder about the meaning of this book. Sad to say, a lot of people today still want to apply it to some future millennial kingdom where Jesus is going to come and reign on the earth for a thousand years. There is no such thing to come. Jesus has come once. And when he comes a second time, it won't be to reign, it will be to judge. The heavens will pass with a great noise and a shout of the archangel, and those things that were will be no more, and the earth will be burned up. And then everyone who ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of God and be judged by Jesus Christ. Paul tells us about this in 2 Corinthians where he tells the Corinthian Church of Christ, he says that all men will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for all the deeds done in the flesh, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what Paul said. And there is no second chance like there might be in a millennial kingdom. No, when the Lord returns, it will be in a millisecond and with a, a shout, and it will be all over. But that's not our message or our purpose here tonight. We are here to talk about what Peter says is the meaning, 
the being singular, meaning being singular. There's no multiple meanings here. It's the meaning. This is what the passage means. And so I want us to uh, begin now to read the passage as it is uh, given in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 uh, is integral to who we are. But you recall that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and they began to speak in tongues. And every man in the audience, at least nine different languages, nine different peoples, if not more, heard the gospel in their own language. And so they congregated to the place where this was taking place. And they gathered around thousands of people. And they heard the very first gospel sermon on the birthday of the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he had himself promised to build. And here he is building it on this day. So I would like to call your attention to the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 14. They are wanting to hear what the apostles had to say. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk. They had accused them of being drunk. And Peter says, no, that can't possibly be the case. He says, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. We're talking about nine o'clock in the morning. Now, people are, haven't had a time to get drunk by nine o'clock in the morning. And so drunkenness could not possibly be the explanation for these things happening. But, verse 16, but, but, this singular is singular. What singular was uttered singular through the singular prophet singular Joel singular this is the meaning of this passage in Joel. The meaning, the singular meaning, the meaning of the ages, the passage of the ages, when at one particular point in time, God reveals his eternal plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. We have said, and we'll say again, that in all the history of mankind, there was never a greater event than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But second unto it, there never has been a day like the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a major feast day of the Jews. It fell 50 days after Passover every year. And it was on a Sunday it was on the Lord's Day, 
that these things took place. At nine o'clock in the morning. Now, depending on how you reckon the time frame, I am told that the Roman calendar is off by four days, or four years rather. And that being the case, if it is the correct, I believe it is, at nine o'clock in the morning, 50 days after Passover in the year of our Lord, 29. At that particular date and time, Joel and his prophecy is fulfilled. And the meaning is unbelievable. Because these people knew their Old Testament Bibles. They just didn't understand. But now they understand. Why do they understand? Because by inspiration, Peter, backed up by the miracles, the word being confirmed by the miracles of this language being spread out in every tongue, Every person could hear in their own language. This is incredible, miraculous things going on, confirming what he says is being true. Peter now says this is the meaning of Joel. And here he goes. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What an amazing statement. The last days. What are the last days? The last days... This is the first day of the last days. The last days are all those days from the day of Pentecost until the trumpet sounds and Christ returns with the clouds. They were in the last days, because even though it was the first day of the last days, they were in the last days. We're in the last days. And it's just... Incredible what is going on here. In the last days, God declares that I will spirit pour out my spirit on all flesh. We're reminded here of what God told Abraham way, way, way back in Genesis chapter 12. What did he say? This is through you, Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. All the nations. And here he uses the phrase, on all flesh. On all flesh and on all nations, two ways to say the same thing. Now, I wanted to make one point and make it clear. 
This message was not for everybody on that day. Repeat, on that day. Because it would be 10 years before the gospel would be available to the Gentiles through the household of Cornelius. So how could Peter be speaking only to the Jews and at the same time be speaking in terms of on all flesh? Well, he says this later on where he says in verse 39 of chapter 2, after he's told them what they had to do to be saved, to repent and be baptized, all of them, in the name of Jesus Christ for their mission of sins. They would be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 39, for the promise, this promise, repentance and baptism, remitting sins, that promise is for who? For you and your children and for all who are far off, people yet unborn, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Jesus has called everybody with the exclusion of no one since Peter gave that first sermon to the Gentiles to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Since then, the door has been opened wide to Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone, all flesh, all the nations. And so here it is. Peter says, this is the meaning of Joel. Now, Joel's a very short book, only three chapters, and this is a, a quotation after out of Joel chapter 2, right in the middle of it all. And he talks about your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even my male servants and female servants. He's talking about that in these last days, when the Spirit is being poured out, miraculous things are going to happen. And how, how do we look at the miracles in the New Testament? Well, if we'll turn back to the book of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples what's going on mark 16 beginning with verse 14 we see the purpose of miracles afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
Baptism is not necessary if you want to go to hell, only if you want to go to heaven. And these signs, what signs? These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. What's going on here in Acts 2? They're speaking in new tongues. And they will pick up serpents with their hands. Paul did that on Malta. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. These things happened. Why? Why did these things happen? Continue to listen. Verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. And what did he do? And confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That's the purpose of these miracles. And Joel is saying these things are going to happen on on this day. When this takes place, the, the Lord's going to pour out his spirit so that his word can be preached and it can be confirmed. Why did the word need confirming in those early years? Because the New Testament had not yet been written. People couldn't go to their Bible and say, well, show me the book, chapter, and verse and look it up and see for themselves. Well, it hadn't been written yet. So how did the people know that the apostles were telling the truth? By the accompanying signs that confirmed their words. And that's what's going on. And verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent or terrible day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. An amazing passage. In the Old Testament, a lot of phrases are used in metaphorical ways to illustrate something incredible and describing the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord comes and reveals his will, because this is what's going on here. The will of Christ, the New Testament, is being probated and read on this day. We know from the book of Hebrews, without the death of the testator, the will does not go into effect. The will of Christ was established at the cross, but it did not go into effect until the day of Pentecost when that was read to the people. It was probated on Pentecost. And the people heard it. And they understood the terms of it. And what was going to be done by it. And they're watching this unfold before their very eyes. And hearing it unfold before their very ears. It is fantastic. And so 
when God comes, when God comes to visit his people, there are a number of metaphors to explain the magnificence of such an event. And they're all kind of lined up in a row here. It's sort of like redundancy upon redundancy upon redundancy. This beautiful and wonderful day of the Lord, the day of salvation, is come to Israel. And he describes it by, first of all, wonders in heaven. Wonders in heaven describe the day of the Lord. Signs on the earth below describe the day of the Lord. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke describe the day of the Lord. The sun being turned to darkness describes the day of the Lord. And the moon turning to blood describes the day of the Lord. These are all metaphors. These are symbolic descriptions. It's God's way of saying through his word, when I show up, it will be a day like none other, either before it or since, the day of salvation. He's describing the day of salvation when the will of Christ is read for the first time and his will, the New Testament, goes into effect the first time and it's the best kind of news that there ever could be or ever will be, people then and now should stand in awe and amazement of this great and terrible day of the Lord. And one might ask, how can a single day be both great and terrible at the same time. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 21. What a great promise. What a great, fantastic promise. And it shall come to pass that everyone, not just some, but everyone, who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. On that day, these thousands of Jews are gathered. And what they're going to hear is terrible and magnificent. They're going to hear God's judgment, and then there's going to hear God's sentence. But the sentence is not terrible. It's magnificent. The sentence is not destruction, not punishment, not death, not pestilence, not a plague, not slavery. None of these things. No. The sentence that they receive is remission of sins. What a wonderful, wonderful story. Thinking they were going to get what they deserved. Instead, they got what they didn't deserve. They deserved death, and instead they got salvation. 
Joel prophesied, and now it's coming true. On this day, Peter says, on this day, this very day, right here and right now, everyone here who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, at this point in his sermon, they don't know how to call on the name of the Lord. It's a very specific thing. And the Bible, being the Bible, gives us a very specific answer to what that, does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Does it mean that we're to fall on our knees and say some kind of prayer? And if so, what prayer is it that we are to pray? And what words are we to pray? How do we know that the prayer has been answered, etc., etc., etc.? But thank God, he tells us. What does it mean when God says to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Acts chapter 22. And verse 16 tells us precisely. Paul is relaying the story of his own conversion. And he's been in Damascus for three days, blind, without eating. And he's been praying the whole time. And God has sent Ananias the preacher to him with two tasks. One is to cure him of his blindness, and number two is to proclaim the words of salvation to Paul so he'll know what to do because when he fell blind on the road and had the discourse with Jesus Christ, he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And Jesus says, go into the city and there it will be told to you what to do. So Paul goes to the city, and for three days he does not eat, and he's in continuous prayer, and he's blind. And then Ananias comes and says, Hey, Saul, God has sent me to lay my hands on you and to cure you of your blindness, and to tell you that he is going to send you as his emissary to the Gentiles. But there's some unfinished business before that happens. And that is, you are not yet a Christian. You still have your sins. And you must obey the gospel. Acts 22 and verse 12 beginning. Let's read it. So we'll understand what Joel's talking about here, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the question is asked and answered, what constitutes calling upon the name of the Lord? How does one call upon the name of the Lord in an acceptable way to God, where God will answer the desires of that heart? Here we go. Verse 12, Acts 22. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, 
and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of who, what you have seen and heard. And now, and now, here's the invitation. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Yes, after three days of fasting and praying, Paul, or Saul rather, still had a sin problem. He hadn't been saved. His sins had not been remitted. And now the preacher is saying, what are you waiting for? Get up. Let's get in the water and be baptized. Why, Saul, do you need to get in the water and be baptized? Because you have to call upon his name for salvation. How do you do that? You get in the water. That's the command of God. Calling upon the name of the Lord is repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins in water. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. No other way. You cannot call on the name of the Lord unless and until you're in the water. Because that's where God, through the powerful working of the circumcision of Jesus Christ, cuts away our sins from us. And we rise with Christ, a new creature, according to what Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. So anytime anyone says, one has to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, they are half right. But it's not through any kind of sinner's prayer. No. It is exclusively and singularly only within the waters of baptism. That's calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And Joel here prophesies that on this day, this magnificent and terrible day of the Lord, men are going to call on his name and they're going to be saved. How? In the waters of baptism. And we talked about how can the day of the Lord be both magnificent and terrible at the same time. Two things I want to leave with you to answer that question. Number one, those who readily received his word and were baptized joyously entered into the Church of Christ. They were added to the Church of Christ by God. Their sins had been remitted through the watery grave. Starting the day thinking they were condemned to death because of the murder of the Son of God received a sentence they never could imagine. And instead of death or destruction or sickness or pestilence or plague or slavery or any terrible thing, God says, I'm going to forgive your sins. Not only am I going to forgive your sins, 
I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to live within you. And then, when your life is over, if you've been found faithful, you will live with God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and all the saints forever and ever. Amen. So, that is how it is magnificent. Well, how is it terrible? I'll tell you how it's terrible. Two ways. One, if you are there and you hear the message of salvation and you reject it, what happens on the day of Pentecost when you reject the words of salvation? When you reject the words of salvation, you embrace the judgment of God and it will destroy you forever and ever. What a terrible thing. So there you see, the day of the Lord is magnificent and it's terrible depending upon how one answers the question, will you rise up and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord? How will you answer that question? That is the determination whether or not this will be a day of magnificence or a day of terror. Now, there's another way also to understand this. God is merciful. God is merciful. Jesus Christ, while he was alive, foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the walls, the destruction of the gates, and the destruction of the entire city, including the temple of God, the magnificent temple built by Zerubbabel and rebuilt by Herod to the point where many scholars say that the restored temple in Jerusalem in the first century was the most magnificent structure on earth. And we are told that the gilded covering of the structure of the temple was so magnificent that when the sun rose in the morning and you were gazing toward Jerusalem, when the sun hit a certain point in the sky, the reflection hit those gilded walls and it was nearly blinding or you couldn't stand to look at it without burning your eyes. It was so magnificent. People couldn't imagine that being gone and destroyed, but it was. Jesus foretold that it would be. And it was 40 years, 40 years from the day of Pentecost until the day Titus rolls into the city as it burns to the ground. Forty years of mercy. Forty years of preaching. Forty years of proclamation. 
40 years of invitation. For 40 years, the people of Israel had the choice. Is this message that Joel foretold, is it a message of magnificence or is it a message of terror? Will you accept the joy of Christ or will you be crushed by the judgment of Christ at the hands of Titus the Roman? Which will it be? Yes, those who obeyed Christ in that 40-year period found the magnificence in that day of proclamation. And those who didn't found death and destruction and terror and damnation. And so it remains today. Joel is speaking to us though he be dead through the scriptures. And his message today is for all people. It began just for the Jews and extended to Judea and then to the Samaritans and then within 10 years to the uttermost parts of the earth. We were included from Cornelius on. And so today Joel is, as it were, calling to us through the thousands of years and says, in effect, today is the day of God, the day of salvation or the day of damnation, the day of magnificence or the day of terror. And he says the same thing to us that he said to them on the day when the word of God is proclaimed and you hear it. Is it a day of salvation for you or is it a day of damnation for you? Which will it be? I hope and pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. Because the promise is valid. The will is enforced. And it will be enforced until the last day. But our lives are not guaranteed. We don't know how much time we will have. So, today is the day of salvation. Today is the great and magnificent and terrible day of the Lord. And it's up to you whether your day today will be magnificent or will it be terrible. Will this be the day that you'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? Or will you refuse that invitation and instead embrace judgment? If you are ready to be baptized. We are ready to help you today. And not only the Archdale Church of Christ, any Church of Christ anywhere in the world will gladly assist you as you repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins so that you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be added to the Church of Christ by God himself. Today is magnificent, and today is terrible. The choice is yours. If you need and want baptism, you just call me, 704-756-2277, or text me at that same number, or just send me a 
or reply on the Facebook here and we'll respond to help you either here in Charlotte or we'll put you in touch wherever you are we'll put you in touch with someone in your town that will assist you so you can be saved on today the great and magnificent and yet terrible day of the Lord let's make sure it's the day of magnificence thank you and God bless you we will see you again soon Lord willing